Turn with me uh, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to conclude, Lord willing, the chapter 10 today as well as looking at the first verse of chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 starting in verse 23. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. And we do cling to that one plea that the blood of Christ is sufficient. I pray that you'd help us as we look at your word, that it would encourage us today. In Christ's name, amen. The Westminster Confession of Faith begins with this question and answer. It says this, What is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer, of course, is that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. There is nothing that we could do. There is no task that we could commit ourselves to. There is no mission that we could embrace that is higher than this. Everything that we do, every last thing that we do, must be done to the glory of God alone. Nothing else. Today's passage contains one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture on this topic. 1 Corinthians 10.31 will be part of our passage today. That simply says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We do not have the option, as we saw last week and discussed this, we do not have the option as Christians to place a division between the secular and the sacred. There, there, There is no option for us to say, this is my belief and my behavior in the context of the church, And this is my belief and behavior in context of culture. And divide those two out so that I can have different convictions here versus my convictions here. There is no space devoted to the secular and a space devoted to the sacred. And the reason that we said this is the case last week is simply because of this. Christ is Lord over all. There is no domain that is outside of Christ's lordship. There is no space or area where Christ has relinquished his authority. Singing a hymn is spiritual, and so is cooking dinner. Both have meaning because of Christ. And so, just like we uh, pick out hymns that best reflect the glory of God... So too, we engage in our occupations, we engage in our daily activities, our daily commute, all those kinds of things in ways that best reflect and advance the glory of God. Here at Crossview Church, we have a purpose statement that all of you should know, and the purpose statement is this, Crossview Church exists to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. We, by the way, did not 
decide or make this up out of thin air. This is coming from Scripture, particularly this verse that we're going to be looking at today. We uh, have, have looked at Scripture and said we don't have the right to define our own purpose. Our purpose has already been predetermined and defined for us. And so this is what our purpose is as believers and as a church. In order to glorify God in all things, you need to take up arms against the world and its anti-God philosophy. You need to take up arms against those who would oppose God and speak truth into culture. But one must not forget that in the context today, in the context that we find this command, we need to take up arms against ourselves. The specific context of this statement of glorify God in everything comes in the context of denying ourselves our own Christian liberty. It comes in the context of waging war against our own souls, knowing that the heart, as Jeremiah would remind us, is deceitful and desperately wicked. The passage today uh, that we are to glorify God specifically centers around the way that we view our freedom in Christ. We are to use our Christian freedom not for indulgence, but for service to others. And of course, Galatians 5.13 is appropriate in this context. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so let's read this passage in front of us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 23, and we're going to go through verse 11, or uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes this, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We begin this passage in uh, verse 23, where Paul uh, likely addresses what was a uh, Corinthian uh, phrase here. And in verse 23, he says... All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, you may recall that this is the second time that Paul has brought up this particular phrase. Uh, he brought this up first in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 12, where he says basically the same thing. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, it is uh, most likely, and, and you can see that the ESV 
text has put this in quotation marks to relay this, but it is most likely the case that the statement, all things are lawful, was not a Pauline statement, but a Corinthian statement. And Paul was responding to this statement. The Corinthians were saying, all things are lawful for me. I I can do whatever I want. And Paul responded by saying, uh, not all things are helpful, not, not our, I shouldn't be dominated by everything, not all things build up. And he, Paul begins to just put on all these qualifications. Okay, you think everything's awful, but okay. It is most likely that the Christian libertines were making this statement. Remember that in the church at Corinth, there is some sort of division going on between those who would be libertine, those who would simply be antinomian or lawless, we can kind of do whatever we want, versus more of the legalistic group in the church. Uh, And Paul is writing this letter and addressing both of these particular errors. And Paul gives three qualifiers to this statement. And I just wanted to bring all three of them in one place. Um, They're split up between verse 23 here in chapter 10 and verse 12 of chapter 6. One of these three... Uh, qualifiers he gives twice, one in each verse. And so this is Paul's response to the statement, all things are lawful. He says, not all things are helpful. And he says this twice, again, one in chapter 6 and one in chapter 10. And then he says, not all things build up. This is in chapter 10. Gives this qualifier. And then in chapter 6, he gives the qualifier, I will not be dominated by anything. He says, okay, you think that you could just do whatever you want? You think that all things are lawful? Well, just remember, not everything is helpful, and not everything builds up, and you don't want to put yourself in a position where something else dominates you, and you become uh, submissive to something else other than Christ. Uh, There probably are a handful of ways that you can translate this phrase into the modern vernacular. I don't know many people who go around saying all things are lawful, all things are lawful. But probably the best way I can think of to translate this Corinthian phrase into the modern vernacular is the wildly popular phrase, only God can judge me. Okay? People say that phrase a lot. And really, at least these two phrases accomplish the same thing. The phrase, all things are lawful, is a phrase that basically means... I can do whatever I want to do. And the phrase today, only God can judge me, quote-unquote, is a phrase that also says, I can do whatever I want to do. Or at least that's typically how it's used today. Uh, The passage is informing us what kind of thinking is required before we engage in any sort of behavior at all. So, Before I engage in this activity, before I engage in this behavior, before I think about this thing, before I meditate on this, before I do this, before I do that, what must I ask myself? Most people would simply ask this, do I want to do it? And if the answer is yes, then I do it. That's how most people would think through this today, but... This passage informs us that there is a lot more to consider before engaging in any particular behavior. If we take 1 Corinthians 6.12 side by side with verse 23 of our present passage, there are at least three questions up here 
that we must ask ourselves before engaging in any activity. We are to ask, is this thing that I'm about to do helpful? Is this thing that I'm about to do, does it build up? And will this thing eventually dominate or control me? This is another way of saying that we need to have biblical wisdom in our decision-making. Now, specifically, this command comes in a context, and the context that this comes in is in the context of meat offered to idols. Just because you can eat meat doesn't mean you should. That's what this whole passage, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, has been about. Sure, you can go buy meat in the meat market that was offered to an idol. You can take that meat into your house. You can cook it, and you can eat it, and fine. You have Christian freedom to do that. But he says, if that's going to cause your brother to stumble, don't do that. And just in case there is any lack of clarity here in what Paul is saying, he says this in the next verse, rather pointedly, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. This is uh, certainly a high calling as Christians, that we are not to uh, look out uh, only or primarily for ourselves but for our neighbors. And one should not miss this theme, not only here, but elsewhere in Scripture as a whole. There's a number of passages we can turn to. Uh, Philippians 2 comes to mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 14 Verse 7, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. We don't live on a little island, an isolated island. We are to be constantly thinking about, is my behavior edifying and not building to my neighbor? Romans 15 and verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so forth for the law of Christ. We are to live our lives focus on others, namely our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that does not mean that we are to live bound by their consciences. Our conscience is to be bound by the what? The Word of God, by Scripture, by the Bible. And that is exactly what the next three verses uh, tell us. Paul has been saying, if this offends, don't eat. If this offends, don't eat. If this is going to cause your brother to stumble, don't eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. And now he kind of takes a little bit of a parenthetical here. And he says, basically, if your conscience gives you freedom to do this, then go enjoy it. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Eat whatever without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Four, reason. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. This was intended to be very um, freeing to these Corinthians. Paul is simply saying, you can go over to someone's house and you don't have to start it with, now, before I eat, was this meat offered to idol? doesn't matter. He says, just go and enjoy. Go get anything in the meat market. Go eat it and enjoy it. And he gives a command followed by a principle, followed by a command. 
okay? The command is this, or the first command is this, go eat whatever you find in the meat market and don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Now remember, this command is not at odds with what we said last week. Last week, Paul said, absolutely don't do it at all. But what's the difference? That was in the context of a pagan worship service. And Paul was saying, in that context, you're communicating worship to these false gods. Don't do it. But if you take the meat out of that context and you're in your own home, fine. You can eat it. There's, there's, there's no issue at all with that. And so this, this passage is not at odds because he's addressing different scenarios or different reasons. Um, so he says, if it's just meat, there's no issue with it. Don't worry. Just eat it. Um, now, one uh, commentator remarks um, to help maybe with some of the Jewish context here. He says, this is in sharp contrast to the Jewish approach. Jews were very scrupulous and made searching inquiries before they would eat meat. Paul's attitude was revolutionary. He took seriously the truth that an idol is nothing. This refusal to ask questions shows it did not matter to him whether a piece of meat had been offered to an idol or not. He discouraged over scrupulousness. So this is in contrast to the Jewish mindset of the day, asking question after question after question after question. I have to be totally, completely, positively sure that this never was anywhere close to being sacrificed to an idol. Kind of, uh, uh, really, uh, a form of what today psychologists would call obsessive-compulsive disorder. I, gotta, I have to be totally sure that this is totally fine. And Paul simply says, just you don't need to worry about that. And so what I want to do here is I, I want to jump to verse 27 and then back to 26 because I want to look at the second command and then I want to um, finish the, these three verses here with the principle that underlies all of this. In verse 27, he says, even if you're invited over to someone's house, don't ask about the, the meat. Just eat it and forget it. So you can go to the meat market, not ask, buy it, bring it home, eat it. You can go to someone's house, and unbelievers even, don't ask a question, eat the meat, that's fine. He says, don't let your conscience bother you about this. Um, now, in this verse, and, and there's some different principles, whether you're talking about a believer or an unbeliever. Um, this verse is saying that you are in the house of an unbeliever. Okay, so, so if you're with a believer, you could cause them to stumble. But if you're in the house of an unbeliever and you have a lot of conscience scruples, your conscience bothers you about a large range of issues, more issues than the Bible tells us we should be bothered by. If you have an overly scrupulous conscience and you are in the house of an unbeliever, this could be kind of distracting from trying to share the gospel with this person, right? If you are in the home of an unbeliever and was this offered to the, and was this, and, and what about this, and, and I'm not sure about this, and it, the, the, the unbeliever is going to say, you know, this guy is wacko. What, what, what is going on? And, and you have this overly scrupulous conscience, this conscience that is bothering you about too many things, and now you've potentially put even a stumbling block here. This does not mean that we are to relinquish things that Scripture says. 
that our consciences should be bound by, but it is to say that our consciences should be informed accurately by Scripture. And in this case, excessive scrupulousness is going to lead to really a negative uh, situation here. So when you go to the unbeliever's home, just eat it and forget it. Okay, now why does he give these two commands? Verse 26. Look at this verse. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This really, this is kind of interesting because we, we talk frequently about how the fact that our behavior is rooted in our theology or our doctrine. Um, we don't know we don't know how to behave without doctrine. We don't know how to love without doctrine. We don't know how to act without doctrine. And this is exactly what he's saying here. What it, how do I know how to act inside this person's home? It's the doctrine of creation. He, so, somehow Paul is making a connection between theology of the doctrine of creation and how I am to behave with regard to eating this meat. Somehow they're connected. And Paul doesn't think they should be divorced from one another. This verse, by the way, is a direct quotation from Psalm 24 and verse 1, where he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. There are a couple of other psalms that this is closely related to as well. Uh, Psalm 50 in verse 12, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) Why? Because the earth and the fullness are mine. (laughs) Even if I was hungry, which I'm not, I wouldn't tell you because I have all the resources I need because I made everything. And then in Psalm 89 verse 11, it says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The question here then is this. What is verse 26 teaching, and why is it the reason we can eat the meat? What what, what is this teaching? Well, first of all, this verse is teaching divine ownership over all of creation. God owns everything. Of course, Psalm 50 and verse 10 teaches us this. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Okay? God owns everything. Okay, this includes you, by the way. God owns you. This includes every molecule, every atom in the universe. God owns everything. It belongs to him. He gets to say how it's managed, how it's taken care of. One of the biblical realities that this doctrine of divine ownership of creation communicates with us is this fact. God has given to us his creation to enjoy. You are allowed to enjoy creation. You are allowed to enjoy life. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 says this. For everything created by God. Look, doctrine of creation, theology as the ground for behavior. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. I don't have to reject the apple pie, okay? The sunset, okay? The 
summer breeze, the rainbow. Why? Theology. Everything created by God is good. That's what he grounds this in. So having fun, enjoying pie, watching a sunset, going for a drive together as a family, going to the zoo, going on a hike, all of these things and more are things that we can participate in with joy. We can, we can enjoy these things. We can have fun. Okay? In fact, Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. We have more reason than anyone else to be full of joy because we see all of the divine goodness in every last thing. All of creation should function as little reminders, little signposts of God's goodness to us. We see the sunset and we say, God is so good. And, and we see the grass growing. God is so good. We, 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 see, we see God bringing the rain and we say, God is so good. Now, some well-meaning Christians have imagined that a dour attitude is the closest thing to godliness. <laughs> you know, the, the, the most... Uh, you know, uh, serious, uh, sour, possible attitude and disposition, that is the closest thing to godliness. And that just is not true. God has given us everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who what? Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You can go for a walk and enjoy God's creation. In other words, bringing it back to the specific context here, you're allowed to enjoy the meat. You, you don't have to wonder if someone did some kind of weird thing to the meats, quote-unquote spiritually speaking. You can just enjoy the meat. You're allowed to enjoy meat. You're allowed to enjoy coffee. You're allowed to enjoy tea. You're allowed to enjoy whatever. Because God has given us these things because he is good and because he owns everything. Now, of course, not in excess, but that'll be another sermon for another day. But you understand that God has given us these things to enjoy. <clears throat> now, to clarify, we do not enjoy these things because, uh, or we do not enjoy them detached from God. We enjoy them because God gave them to us. There's a big difference there. I do not enjoy things independently of God. I enjoy them because God wants me to enjoy it. And that enhances my joy in that. This is part of a Christian theology of joy. A Christian theology of joy instructs us that my enjoyment of this particular thing is because God gave it to me in his goodness and wants me to enjoy it and thank him for it. Not just enjoying this detached from the Lord. Now, to further ask, answer our question, why is this a reason that we can eat the meat? And here's the reason. Because the idols that the meat was sacrificed to, they still don't own the meat. God still owns it. They don't own it. And so you don't have to look at that meat and say, 
but the false gods own this now. And if I eat it, I'm eating something that they own. No, God still owns it, and God made it, and God made it good. And so nothing changed. It did not change ownership once it was sacrificed to this, uh, to this uh, idol. There was no ownership transfer that took place when the meat was offered to an idol. God still owns the meat, and thus you are partaking of something that is within God's domain, and you're free to partake of that. This goes back to the dominion mandate where God called us to exercise dominion over God's creation. And this includes subduing the world in ways that we can find more joy, even in the little details. Genesis 1.28, God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The dominion mandate gives us authority, derived authority from God to build houses to plant gardens, to plant orchards, to raise families, to have children, to build churches, to build communities, to bring order out of chaos. This is part of God's goodness. The dominion mandate includes taming animals. It includes cooking and baking and all of these kinds of wonderful things that we can take something that was chaotic out there and we can bring order and dominion over this thing. And so God has called us to enjoy that. He's called us to exercise these things. Interestingly enough, it is the doctrine of creation that gives us freedom to enjoy the meat. Everything links back somehow to your theology, somehow to your doctrine. If you have a wrong view of creation, then you are going to have a wrong view of this. If you believe in some form of dualism, that it's God versus Satan, and today Satan has the upper hand and tomorrow God has the upper hand and they're dueling back and forth and they're working. If you have that view of creation, then not everything is there for you to enjoy. Some of it's under Satan's domain, right? It is the doctrine of creation that rescues us to have right thinking and therefore right behavior in this particular uh, area. But that freedom needs to be weighed in the balance. Just because I can exercise my freedom doesn't mean that I must in every situation. As Ecclesiastes would remind us, there is a time for everything. Okay, There is a time to enjoy apple pie. That time is not every day, every meal, okay? There is a time to have the pie, and there's a time not to have the pie, okay? And Ecclesiastes instructs us in this. There is a time to enjoy a good meal. There is also a time to refrain from enjoying a good meal. Biblical wisdom tells us which is appropriate for the occasion. In this occasion, this is appropriate. In this occasion, this is appropriate because of these other biblical principles. And... If the exercise of my liberty, this is one of the principles. We're going to give one of these principles that helps us in biblical wisdom decision-making process. If the exercise of my liberty could damage the conscience of another believer, then now is the time to refrain. Okay? When you get home by yourself later, then go ahead okay, and eat the meat. But right now, it's going to damage the conscience of this brother or sister in Christ, and so now is a time to refrain from that. 
he says this, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. He's calling us to be flexible as Christians. He says, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, the first question, there's uh, a lot of discussion about these verses, actually, and maybe you've caught it already, one of the points of discussion, because it seems a little bit weird that he says something and then seems like he says the opposite here. Um, but but let's, let's unpack this one at a time. First question is this, who is the someone? If someone says to you, this has been offered a sacrifice, don't eat it. You've been invited to dinner at someone's house, and someone tells you that it was offered in sacrifice. Uh, I, I think most commentators typically would suggest, and I think it makes the most sense, that this someone is a fellow believer. I mean, who else would bring this up? If you're at an unbeliever's house, he's probably not going to tell you that it was offered in sacrifice. He could. It's probably going to be a believer saying, don't eat it. It's been offered in sacrifice. That, that's probably the context. So most people believe that this someone is another believer. Perhaps, maybe, and there's a lot of scenarios we could uh, run here because it leaves it open for a number of scenarios, but I think probably um, one, one of the biggest scenarios here we could think of is maybe a couple of believers from the same church perhaps have a community friend relationship with an unbeliever, a neighbor, and this unbeliever invites these couple of Christians over to uh, his house. And so you and this other believer are in this unbeliever's home, and this other believer leans over to you and says, you know, just so you know, this was offered in sacrifice. His conscience is bothered by it. He can't eat that meat. And so now you're in a little bit of a bind here. What do you do? Um, and you're sitting at the table. You don't have time to preach a sermon to him, okay? You don't have time to explain the doctrine of creation in this context. You're just right there, and it's right in front of you. What do you do? Um, he says to refrain. Now, there are some people who understand this could be an unbeliever as well, um, and there's a few different scenarios um, that could be taking place here. It is possible that there's an unbeliever maybe attending and their conscience is also bothering. It could be for different reasons. Um, that could be one reason. Um, it could be another unbeliever, unbeliever at the table and maybe he's testing you or informing you or wanting to see if you're a hypocrite or whatever. Um, and so there's a number of suggestions um, for what exactly is going on here. Um, the text doesn't give us all that information. It simply calls him someone. I think, again, the, the situation that most likely is what's going on, <coughs> excuse me, is it is um, a fellow believer. And in the book uh, Conscience by Nacelli and Crowley, they give a scenario here. Um, and I think this is the most likely scenario that's going on. They write this, Christian liberty is about another Corinthian Christian at the same party who has no scruples against eating meat. And just as he gets ready to dig into the slab of steak on his plate, someone sitting next to him leans over and says, Psst, don't eat it. It's been sacrificed. And for the sake of that man and his weak conscience, the meat lover puts down his fork and says, 
thank you for telling me that. Now, that's easier said <laughs> than done, okay? Um, I want to eat the meat. <laughs> and of course, there is time later on to maybe work with this fellow believer and to discuss, but in that moment, it is... I'm just not going to eat this because I don't want to trample over this person's conscience. Now, again, remember that if, if you're here for the first time, we've been in this since chapter 8, okay? And so let me just give you one principle that we've, that, that we've seen way back then, and that is um, th- this, this is not merely for someone who is just offended by everything, okay? We call that the tyranny of the weaker brother, Okay? We're saying that you're going to lead this person into sinning against their conscience by your behavior. Okay, this is a very specific command. This command is is not the person leans over and says, it would offend me if you ate that. I don't think you should eat that. This command is, if this person's conscience is weak and it's you and them sitting next to each other and let's pretend you're the only two believers in that room and there's, you know, 20 unbelievers sitting there and they're all eating the meat, all eating the meat, and this person leans over and says, don't eat it. And you say, I'm just going to eat it. Now that person is like, now I'm the only one. But my be- believing friend, I better just go ahead and eat it. And then they do something that they believe is sinning against God. That's the specific context for this. This is not that we are to let our consciences be dictated by everyone else's weak conscience. We are to um, be cautious that we are not leading a fellow believer into sin. And, of course, we talked about that a lot more in some previous messages uh, starting in chapter 8. In non-moral areas, the principle is this. The mature Christian is flexible. In non-moral areas, it is okay to eat the meat or not eat the meat, okay? It, 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 murder is not a non-moral area, okay? Okay? Theft is not a non-moral area, Okay? I better not steal because this person's conscience will be offended. You better not steal because God said don't steal, okay? There's a difference here in, in what's going on. This is, this is in a <clears throat> non-moral area. Uh, sometimes we call these gray areas. Now, what, is this, uh, what else does this verse teach us? Well, <clears throat> we do know that there is a good chance that someone will be offended here. This text, keep in mind that it is a choice. It's not, this is another classic um, which, not whether, okay? Which person am I going to offend, not whether I'm going to offend somebody, okay? When you're sitting down at the table and this believer says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, you have a choice. Who are you going to offend? You are either going to offend that believer or cause him to stumble, or you're going to offend who else? The, the host. You're going to offend the believer or you're going to offend the host. Someone is going to be mad at you because if you, if you eat the meat, you're offending the brother. And if you don't eat the meat, your host is like, What's the problem? <laughs> why, 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 would you, why are you doing this? So which, not whether. Not will I offend someone, but who will I offend? This is a reminder, by the way, 
that we cannot live our lives without offending anybody. Okay? You, you, you will offend people regardless of what you do. And so if you have a believer sitting next to you and you have an unbelieving host who puts meat in front of you, you have a choice. You can either wound your brother's conscience or you can offend the host. Now, some people would say, well, I can always repair my relationship with my brother later and I don't want to lose an opportunity to share the gospel with this person. This passage gives us a strong case for the opposite of that, actually. This passage gives us a strong case for us to uh, offend the unbeliever before we would ever think of getting near to harming our brother's conscience. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a perplexing thing to me today that many Christians would much rather damage their relationship with a fellow Christian over a relationship with an unbeliever. There are many Christians today who would say, I am totally fine with trampling over my relationship with another Christian uh, over, uh, uh, over, over damaging relationship with an unbeliever. Now, to be sure, let me just clarify, not every single situation is you have to pick one, okay? I'm not saying that, okay? We should, as much as humanly possible, strive to be what? Paul says in Romans, at peace with all men, okay? But when there is a choice, this passage indicates to us how we are to deal with that. When there is a, this one or this one, we are to prefer our brother in Christ. I want to just give you a few passages on uh, the priority of preserving our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans fourteen fifteen. Uh, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Parallel passage, by the way. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for what? For whom Christ died. He's talking about a fellow believer. Don't damage your relationship or destroy the one with that your brother with. First Corinthians eight eleven. And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. First John five one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves who? Whoever has been born of him. This is an evidence of salvation. You want to know, am I genuinely converted? You will love other Christians. If you don't ever love other Christians, then you have to ask yourself, am I genuinely in Christ? Because I will love everyone that Christ loves. And if Christ loves this person, then I'll love this person. And then John 13, 35, by this will all people know you're my disciples if you have love for who? For one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. You ought to love the people here in this room. Why? Because, assuming that everyone has repented and trusted in Christ, Christ died for them. Christ died for that brother. Christ died for that sister. And so we ought to love one another. Um, even if you think the other person's awkward or whatever. Have you ever looked in a mirror before? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've got your own idiosyncrasies. Okay. And... Uh, 
you might say, wow, that person's kind of weird. Well, you're weird to somebody, okay? <laughs> um, we are to love people and look through those things. I, I am actually, sometimes I am shocked at how much um, someone's uh, social awkwardness or lack thereof plays into whether we love that person. It's such a trivial thing, and yet it has become a huge thing for us. It has. Um, we all have our own idiosyncrasies. We all have our own things. Th- this is your brother for whom Christ died. Love that person. Care for that person. And there are all sorts of other reasons why we struggle with loving people, but that one happens a lot, I think. The rest of verse 29 and 30 is actually kind of difficult to understand. Um, it sounds like he's advocating for the opposite of what he just said. Do you, do you hear that in the text? Did anyone catch that in the text? He says, um, he says verse, uh, let's see, let's go back up to uh, 26. He says, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of his conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. And what is he saying? He's saying, change your behavior for their conscience. And he immediately says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Well, you just said that it should be. And now you're saying it shouldn't be? Um... What is, what is going on here? It seems like it's a, a contradictory statement here. Um, there are actually a, a handful of uh, different uh, explanations on exactly what Paul is getting at. I think probably the best way to understand this is to understand verses 28 through 29a as parenthetical. We could put parentheses around this. And see, 29b through 30 is an extension of 25 through 27. Do, do you see how that, it, it, it flows very well to, to think of it that way? So if you think of verses 25 through 27, he's saying, go eat the meat. It's fine. Enjoy it. It's part of God's creation. For why should your conscience be deter- or your liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? You don't have to live your life bound by someone else's conscience. Enjoy it. Have the freedom. It's good. And then in parentheses, but if it's going to cause them to stumble, then just set it aside for now. You don't have to change your whole life. Just change it in this particular area. And it's kind of a parenthesis in that. I think that's probably the best way to understand it. Um, But uh, there there are a number of other suggestions. I, I think probably less plausible, but... I think that um, makes a lot of good sense in uh, keeping the flow very well of what Paul is saying here. Okay, uh, the final section is uh, 1031, or contains 1031. He says, whatever you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense uh, to Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Many people, or most people, probably take this verse, 1031, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, to kind of mean even in the mundane things of life, glorify God. 
That is true. And that is an application, I think, of 1 Corinthians 10.31. But it's not the quite nuance (coughs) of it in its context. Remember, this is coming in the context of meat offered to idols. And so the nuance is this. Even when it comes down to how you use your freedom in eating this meat or not eating this meat, glorify God in that decision too. And of course, yes, it does mean also in the mundane things of life, um, glorify God. This verse is advocating for something that we might term self-disciplined freedom. It is freedom that has not gone off the rails. It's a Christian liberty that is in, as we've said before, the domain of the mature. It is a Christian who knows how to use his freedom, when to use his freedom, why to use his freedom, and all those kinds of things. It is self-disciplined freedom. It is a flexibility in knowing what I can let go and what I can't let go of. What is an area that I can um, give freedom to and what, what is an area that I cannot? Because this is a strict matter of obedience to God's word. Furthermore, this, verse, or this section says you are giving no offense to Jews, Greeks, or the church. You are trying to please everyone. Um, we are not to try, I, I do think that maybe some Christians have made it their life goal to do this, but it is not our life goal to try to be offensive for the sake of being offensive, okay? Um, we are not supposed to try to make people angry at us, okay? We're not supposed to try to do those things. Um, however, if we are successful Christians, we will offend people. It is going to come. We're just not to try to stoke the fire if we can avoid it, so to speak. We are to let the Bible offend instead of us. Uh, and so this is what Paul is saying when he says, I try to please everyone. I'm, I'm trying to just not be offensive as much as I can, but there is going to be a point where I have to be offensive. And if you look at Paul's statement here, look at how compatible that is with his lifestyle. Was Paul an offensive person? Yes. <laughs> uh, he was in the jail constantly, okay, because he was offending somebody, okay? Um, so certainly those two aspects have to be compatible with one another. Paul's statement of I try to please everyone with stall, stall, uh, Paul's reality of I offended a lot of people. Those are compatible with one another. Paul then says that we are to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And so taken together, we are told to tie up every loose end and to bring every thought, every action, and every motivation into submission to the Lordship of Christ. What this means, plainly stated, is that your life's purpose is assigned to you, not created by you. You have no option to create your own life purpose. It's been given to you. What I mean is that you don't have the option of, quote-unquote, finding yourself or your purpose. That has already been given to you. You can accept what God has given to you, or you can reject that and rebel against God. But you cannot, you, you have no option to um, make your own purpose. This is one of the big distinctions between Christianity and the spirit of the age or the way that we think in our culture today. The spirit of the age tells us that you get to create your purpose, that your life is like a blank canvas, and you get to write on it whatever you want to write on that blank canvas. You get to write your purpose down and your mission and your vision, and you get to all of this stuff you get to make and shape yourself. 
But this misses the fundamental reality that we are designed. And as creatures who are designed, we are peak men and women when we operate according to how God has assigned us to operate. When we are doing the things God has told us to do. When we do this intended to glorify God. All right, so where do we go from here? Well, for starters, Paul has come full circle. This is the conclusion of his section on uh, the conscience, okay? Um, Paul started in chapter 8 with a discussion on it. He ends here, and next week's text is going to be the head-covering text, which should be an interesting text to talk about. Um, But this has been on the conscience, and so I want to give you a couple of applications And uh, that is this. Number one, before you are tempted to indulge your Christian freedom for yourself, consider your brother or sister in Christ. Will your behavior cause them to stumble? Okay? Is my behavior going to make them stumble? Number two, enjoy all of God's good creation by finding joy through God in all things and do it with thankfulness. Probably should have said and do it with thankfulness instead of yet do it with thankfulness. Um... So we can enjoy God's good creation. Number three, love your brother for whom Christ died. Huge theme in this section. Huge theme in this section. And then finally, instead of trying to discover your purpose, live your life to the glory of God. In other words, live the purpose that God has assigned to you. Um, I can get these to you uh, if you want. Uh, I want to give you uh, maybe an extended application. These are some questions. These are not my questions. Um, this is uh, in an ethics book that I read, and I thought it was helpful. It's not, I'm not saying it's comprehensive, uh, but it fits well with this text because we're asking ourselves, how should I make decisions with biblical wisdom? And so they just listed eight questions, and I'm going to give you these eight questions. And uh, if you, if you want to write them down, you can. I don't know if I'll go too fast for you, but I will get it to you if you ask me afterwards. Um, But here's the eight questions. Number one, am I fully persuaded that it is right? Second, can I do it as unto the Lord? Third, can I do it without being a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ? And that's what we've been talking about in our current passage here. Fourth, does it bring peace? Um, Fifth, does it edify my brother? Sixth, is it profitable? Seventh, does it enslave me? And a final test is, does it bring glory uh, to God? So just a few um, maybe helpful thoughts on how we can bring every activity into alignment with, uh, with the glory of God. And so like I said, I can get those to you uh, afterwards. May we be those who have ordered our lives in such a way as to be God-centric in our purpose, our mission, and everything that we do that we would live our lives to the glory of God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us and for today. We pray that you might go with us. Help us to live our lives to the glory of God in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.